Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we recharge your brain with weird and wonderful science. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, Samantha Floriani from Digital Rights Watch and Erin Turner from Choice Magazine complete our discussion on the right to repair. First, here's news of people wrong on the internet. and AstraZeneca similar clot risks, Google shows over 6,000 headlines screaming that a new study in The Lancet shows that Pfizer and AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccines have the same clotting risks. And these articles are endlessly quoted on social media. The problem is that the headlines, and often the articles, are wrong. The actual paper is a preprint, which means it hasn't been peer-reviewed, which is immediately a red flag. The claim that Pfizer vaccines have caused clotting deaths around the world in the same way that AstraZeneca vaccines have is quickly and easily disproved. Published studies show that the AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine has a rate of one death by clotting per million doses and 110 clotting injuries per million doses while the Pfizer vaccine has zero clotting syndrome deaths per million doses and zero clotting injuries per million doses reported. There are rare cases of heart inflammation in teenage boys who had Pfizer COVID-19 vaccines. Yet even esteemed bodies like the Royal College of Physicians have been citing this Spanish preprint and reporting similar clotting syndrome risks. The authors of the paper are researchers from Spain, the UK and the Netherlands. They studied data from over 900,000 Pfizer vaccine doses and over 400,000 AstraZeneca doses administered in the Catalonia region in Spain. They compared the rates of clotting from people who had taken either vaccine with the expected rate of people from 2017, before COVID-19, to see what their rates of venous thromboembolism, arterial thromboembolism, thrombocytopenia, and thrombosis with thrombocytopenia syndrome. They also included the rates of those clotting syndromes in people infected with COVID-19 for reference. They found a 1.3% higher chance of people suffering from each of these clotting syndromes after a dose of either vaccine compared to an eight times higher chance of clotting syndromes in those people infected with COVID-19. The Science Media Centre provided reactions to the paper from two experts. Dr Peter English is a retired consultant in communicable diseases control, former editor of Vaccines in Practice and immediate past chair of the British Medical Association Public Health Medicine Committee. He found that it was a good paper. However, 
Professor Kevin McConway, Emeritus Professor of Applied Statistics at the Open University, found that the sample size was too small for the researchers to have drawn any conclusions, as the clotting problems with the AstraZeneca vaccine occur per million doses. So they only show up in studies with many millions of people. It's very rare. He also points out that the researchers didn't take into account differences in age, gender or pre-existing conditions between those who took the different vaccines and the people from 2017. They also didn't take into account that there may be other differences between the populations that the study just doesn't look at. Professor McConway concluded, All this means that the study cannot tell us whether any differences or lack of differences between people using the two vaccines or between vaccinated people and the general population are actually caused by the vaccines. They might be, but they might not. So, despite the 6,000 screaming headlines, the actual study didn't look at enough people to measure the clotting syndromes and didn't take into account the different vulnerabilities to clotting syndromes in the groups in their study. They certainly were not able to say that Pfizer's community vaccine has a similar rare clotting syndrome risk to AstraZeneca's Vaxzevria vaccine. The preprint is titled Thromboembolic Events and Thrombosis with Thrombocytopenia After COVID-19 Infection and Vaccination in Catalonia, Spain and was published without peer review or editing in preprints with The Lancet. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Steve Wozniak here. We wouldn't have had an apple had I not grown up in a very open technology world, an open electronics world. You could learn electronics at a very young age. I had a ham radio license at 10 years old when you had to build your own radios, every single part of them, transmitter and receiver. You know, and back then when you bought electronic things like TVs and radios, every bit of the circuits and designs were included on paper, total open source. Someone with skill could get in and modify things to fix broken radios or televisions or to improve them or to even replace destroyed parts. When starting Apple, I could never afford a teletype for input and output. You type on this big machine, heavy machine, like you see in movies, you know, and they cost as much as two cars. I could never afford one, you know, so I didn't have any input and output possibilities, even though I had taught myself to design computers and I wanted so badly to figure out how to build a computer that was usable. Well, I owned a television, right? Everyone owned a TV and I knew how the signals worked. But I was, so I was a TV engineer, but I was also a digital design engineer. So I could put the signals into the right place in the TV set. I'd look at its open source schematic and I'd probe around with test equipment and find, yes, this is the place you put video signals in. 
I had my own TV, which I already owned as an output device. I didn't have to afford something I could never afford. So I wasn't restricted, you know, from showing the world. The future of computers is going to be a keyboard and a TV. Engineers, you know, design their circuits, their televisions in the old days, radios, computers now, with specs and connections, you know, uh, or parts meeting those, connections meeting those specs will work fine. Parts meeting those specs will work fine. The thing is, if there's a part inside and you want to substitute a different part that you can get, maybe cheaper, it's not going to blow things up if it meets the specs. That's what engineering's all about. But, you know, if you know what you're doing and you're doing certain steps that others have solved and found that, you know, work pretty well, you can repair a lot of things at low cost, but it's even more uh, precious to know that you did it yourself, you know? Hey, is it your computer or is it some company's computer? Think about that. It's time to start doing the right things. I'll put a link to Steve Wozniak's full video from the Repair Preservation Group on the show notes page. The right to repair. iFixit.org are a maker community creating repair manuals for everything. Here's a sampling from their right to repair manifesto. If you can't fix it, you don't own it. Repair teaches engineering. The best way to find out how to build something is to take it apart. Repair connects people and things. We have the right to devices that can be opened, to repair documentation for everything, to repair things in the privacy of our own homes, to choose our own repair technician, to replace any and all consumables ourselves, to available, reasonably priced service parts, to remove do not remove stickers, because repair is independence and makes consumers into contributors. I'll put a link to the full manifesto on the episode notes page. Samantha Floriani is the program lead from Digital Rights Watch Australia, and Erin Turner is the director of campaigns from Choice Magazine. They joined me by Zoom, and I continued by asking them. Things like mobile phone batteries, mm. like they only last for maybe a year to two at most, and they want you to buy a whole new, you know, thousand plus dollar phone instead of maybe a $50 battery. Yeah, there's definitely a category of products across electronics that yeah, the company's clearly made a design call to not allow the product to be repaired or easily repaired. And that's really frustrating. It's certainly not what consumers want. I think the, the product that really stood out to me when we looked into this was actually Apple AirPods, the little headphones that they have batteries in them, but there's no way to crack open the product and replace them. So when those products stop charging, they're done. There's no alternative option for you to engage with that product. And that's, it's a shame for the consumer. And it's also a shame for the environment. A lot of these products use really precious and rare metals that I wish it wasn't only a throwaway option when something doesn't work anymore. That's it. And I think that, I mean, obviously, especially this week, like I think we're all really tuned into the environment at the moment yeah. and the and the need to be thinking about more sustainable options. It just seems absurd to me that we are generating so much e-waste when, you know, an accessible right to repair could really help to mitigate a lot of that e-waste. 
I did a little bit of digging around some stats around e-waste in Australia and we're in the top five generators of e-waste in the world, which is appalling, really. I don't think we do terribly much to recycle the rare earths or much of our e-waste either. No, and look, I think there's, I mean, there's a lot of factors behind that. But one of the things that really stuck out to me in this process is that companies don't always make it easy. In fact, there's a real gap between what people want and what they're able to do. Some, we did a bit of research around how many people wanted to make sustainable choices. And it, it's around the 70 to 80%, depending on what you measure. And then when we asked, well, how many of you people do make sustainable choices? The number's between 30 and 40. It's not a, it's not a will thing. Quite often, it's actually an execution or ability challenge. Nah, it's not easy to recycle. It's not clear how to recycle. Products literally can't be recycled or repaired. So if, if we find ways to make things easier for people, we're going to see a big change in this. This is really about getting big companies to change their practices because consumers are ready. We're ready to go. <laughs> Absolutely. There's very little, like the manufacturers are not making it easy or accessible for people to be able to make good choices. So we definitely need to be putting more pressure onto them. And I think that also, Erin, you highlighted that earlier that this is really I think the right to repair is a really good example of big tech companies throwing their weight around and a really good example of how they can monopolize industries. So as we know, those handful of big tech companies, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, you know, they hold a huge, huge. amount of power and it's not a stretch to see how they are also using that market power to impact the repair market as well. And I think that this presents an opportunity. Obviously, the Australian government is, is showing quite a, an appetite to be regulating big tech. And the right to repair is a really good opportunity, I think, to, to make some headway in that space. I was going to ask about the fact that mobile phones also are difficult to reuse because they're often locked into networks. We, we've seen a little bit of that. Thankfully, less so, I think, than a few years ago. There is actually one thing I was surprised and delighted about. There's an emerging and small thriving market for refurbished phones, something we've actually changed at Choice. Previously, we only offered options of when we were doing reviews of mobile phones of just, you know, here's, here are the, the latest models. Here's what you can get. We've just updated our reviews so you can see refurbished and new models side by side and find ways to get them steering people to you know, just let people know like these refurbished options are there they're super cheap they're actually done in ways that are secure affordable just as good as a, a new model in many ways so there's it's good there's, there's still a few lag issues but actually if you wanted if you're in the market for a new mobile phone refurbished is a great option and there are now more and more channels where you can securely send your phone away for refurbishment as well there's also issues about repair manuals and whether they're copyright or not and whether you're allowed to buy them or even possess them if you find them somewhere. Oh, I'm going to start with this one, Sam. It's, it's very much an intellectual property issue um, that came up throughout the inquiry. Some poor guy, actually some very creative, exceptional person in Australia was having trouble finding repair manuals and put, a, put several of them in the internet. One, a Toshiba one he actually got some pretty scary legal letters and was asked to take them down. And I think that's a really unfortunate outcome. It prevents third-party repairers from doing repairs well. It really locks down channels. The only party that benefits from this is a company like Toshiba, who then can control their repair market, 
can restrict repair options and charge more for it. It's not a great consumer outcome at all. What about the issues around the internet of things, of devices that have an internet connection, where the manufacturer can change things on your device or fail to update things that keep them working? Yeah, so this is a huge issue. This is an area that Digital Rights Watch in particular is very interested about. So we teamed up with Electronic Frontiers Australia to write our submission on the right to repair. And this is really the, the, the sticking point for us are these security issues associated with the devices, our everyday devices that so, so many of us use these days, which have software embedded on them you know a lot of our devices are not they're not just pieces of hardware anymore so we need to be thinking about the security implications of having unpatched software or out-of-date software running on these devices and internet of things or smart home devices are a really particularly concerning area so essentially the issue is, is that if you have insecure software running on consumer devices that are connected to a public network, that can pose really, really serious public safety concerns because malware or a virus on my device doesn't just impact me if it is connected to a network that can spread. And this can facilitate all kinds of harms. And again, not just on an individual level, but on a community level, and even on like a national security level. So there's real need to be taking the digital security concerns around the right to repairs seriously. So we are pushing for software to be included within the scope of a right to repair, not just hardware. And I think that part of that is, is enabling consumers to participate in good security practices, which benefits all of us. But that's really impossible to achieve if Australians are prevented from repairing or updating or patching their devices and the software that runs on them. We heard from a lot of choice members who were really frustrated with this issue. The big example is Apple. A lot of people buy Apple products assuming they're premium. And assuming that they're going to last a long time, there's certainly a large group of Australians who are still using laptops from five, seven or 10 years ago. And I don't think that's unreasonable at all, particularly when it's still possible. But then they hit roadblocks where their model of computer or phone, it's literally unusable because there's no more security updates. And at minimum, at minimum, what we want to see is for manufacturers to be crystal clear about how long those essential security updates will happen for, for those devices. Because once they stop, essentially those products are unusable. You need to know that date. Because a lot of people are buying some pretty high-end products, assuming they're going to last for a lot longer than they do. Well, that's right. There's so many things where they do that to you. Um, where either, as you said, security isn't updated. You might have an older Android phone and you can't get Android for it anymore, for example. There's also the issue of a lot of Internet of Things devices, like the companies behind them just simply go out of business and then consumers are left using this device that works still, but they're unable to acquire updates updates for. And so because it's still working, again, it kind of tricks you into thinking that it's fine. All the while you have no idea that there's a vulnerability happening behind the scenes. And because the vendor is no longer in business, you kind of left with no real path to repair or to fix or to patch that device. It's a really 
It's a really concerning area. So something as well that's quite close to my heart about the right to repair, and it's perhaps a little bit more of like a esoteric <laughs> thing, is that in the technology industry, a lot of people find pathways into these careers by taking something apart, tinkering with it, figuring out how to improve it, you know, putting it back together. All of this sort of do-it-yourself culture is actually really a key part of the the tech community. And I think it really fosters a sense of innovation, which, you know, is really important for Australia, being able to have these tech, tech skills and build these tech skills. So there's a connection there that I think is really interesting. And beyond that as well, like Erin mentioned before, a lot of these products, you can't even see how to take them apart anymore. It's not, it's like genuinely not possible. You can't take them apart at all. And I think that does have like an interesting impact on the way that we think about technology and the way that we relate to it. They become these like magical technical things rather than, you know, a bit of machinery that is repairable, that is, you know, has a function. So I, there's something in this idea of being able to actually repair your devices that I think has quite a profound impact on how we use and relate to technology. Yeah, I completely agree. It's a lot about control and autonomy. There's this increasing shift around even this big discussion around, do you actually own your products? Or are you really just renting it from a, a large company? And what, what control should they have over your ability to use these products? And I obviously fall down on the side of more control and more autonomy as a consumer advocate. But it can be really frustrating when you run into something with a product and you don't have any avenue to address it. People want that self-control. They do. I mean, I've had a router that the company was bought and they sent an upgrade that bricked the device. So I rang them up and they just said, oh, you have to buy a new one. And there's no redress for that sort of thing. That level of control, like I, I think it's when consumers don't have options. That's so frustrating. And it's just, it's a really good, that is a perfect example of a company using its power in a way that's really harmful. It's not a discussion. It's not a negotiation. It's just a too bad, so sad. Buy something else, please. <laughs> yeah, and you're left in a terrible position where we increasingly rely on technology to be able to not just work, but to live our lives and, and, yeah, and do our jobs, <laughs> interact with people and socialize, especially, especially in a pandemic, you know? So it feels particularly pressing at the moment. So you mentioned there's a Productivity Commission investigation and the government's looking into this. So there's support from both sides, from both parties for this sort of rights? So it's, it's really at an early stage. The Productivity Commission inquiry is about halfway through. They've just done a draft report with some good recommendations and we think there's a lot of areas where they can go further. We're expecting a final report about the end of this year. And after that stage, governments could pick up that report and implement it tomorrow. I hope they do. But I think across political parties, people are still getting across the ideas. I'm finding that there's interest, but we're a little way away from reform is my sense of where this is at. A lot of this debate is about people's rights to find and then use and repair good quality products. It's as much about being able to get something that's durable and just works at an affordable price as 
is it is about your right to intervene when something goes wrong. I'm really hopeful that the Productivity Commission is exploring this from like a consumer rights angle. And I'm hoping we get some really great reforms out of it. But uh, if, if anyone out there is interested and wants to work with Choice or any of the other groups, we're, we're going to be working on this for a long time to come. Better quality products is really our bread and butter. And you can join us, share your stories, tell us about any products that have been bricked or that are problems over at choice.com.au. I mean, I am so stoked that people like Erin and, and Choice more broadly are spending a lot of time focusing on this issue. From a digital rights perspective, it's so important. It touches on so many cross-sections from unchecked power and big tech monopolies to environmental sustainability to digital security and innovation. And I think that it would be such a shame if the Australian government doesn't take up the opportunity to make meaningful change in this space. Well, Erin and Sam, thank you very much. Thank you, Ian. Thanks for having us. That was the second and final part of my discussion with Samantha Floriani from Digital Rights Watch and Erin Turner from Choice Magazine about the right to repair. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send us your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please subscribe to the Diffusion Science Radio channel on youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including Radio Blue Mountains 89.1 FM in New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MVR in Ambaka Valley, 3MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio, 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2XXFM in Canberra. Diffusion is narrowcast on Indigo FM 88 in northeast Victoria. Diffusion is syndicated globally on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf or join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolf. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, 
you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography, collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.